So this past week, I came across uh, this quote that says, if the people of God fully believed what he said he would do, now or at any time in the history of the faith, their lives, their world, would be very different. Just look at that statement, think about that. Does, does a statement like that feel convicting to you? Might, you might feel confronted. If you fully believed and embraced what God says he did and what God says he's going to do, if you fully believed that he would follow through on all of his promises, your life would be very different. And so then we see a quote like that, and the question comes back to us. Do we fully believe him? What ways are we micromanaging and trying to seek for control? Now, we can go down that rabbit hole of trying to answer those questions. But here's, here's where I want to go with that. It's, it's how I've seen myself and other people respond to statements like this before. We look at that and we say, yeah, I got to wake up. I got to do something for Jesus. What do I do? And then we like look at maybe some other examples of other people in the faith. And that, and that might be an okay thing. Uh, it might be appropriate. But, but even that, we can go off the rails. And I'll give you an example. One, one individual that comes up for some people, if you know a little bit more of Christians in the past, a certain individual by the name of George Mueller comes to people's minds. Like, I need to take God seriously. Who took God seriously? George Mueller. And if you, know, if you don't know anything about him, I'll tell you right now, he was a, uh, a man who loved Jesus, lived in the 1900, or 1800s, and he was in England, and he prayed and sought after the Lord, and, and it was through him that orphanages actually began in England and Britain. And, and, and these orphanages were, orphanages were built not because he went around and told people and, and requested money. He actually said, I'm not going to ask for anything. I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to see what the Lord brings in. And there have been studies done on how much, if we were to say, if this was today's dollars, how much did he pray in, so to speak? It was in the millions of dollars that he prayed in. And he didn't take that money for himself. Because when you also look at his life, you realize that he actually, when he prayed, uh, like he was literally, and when I say literally, I actually mean literally. He literally was dependent on literal, daily, literal bread. And he prayed even for that every day. And so you look at George Mueller, you're like, yes, okay. That's what I got to do. See that quote? I'm going to be like George Mueller. And so you pray. And you're like, I believe. I believe you're going to do this, God. And I believe you're going to do this. And I believe you're going to do this. And I believe you're going to do this. And then eventually your life goes on. And you're like, how come these things aren't happening in my life? What's, what's going wrong? Am I doing something wrong? Am I not believing him enough? Do I not have enough faith? And I actually think that if George Mueller were to come to you today, he would say, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Because what you're doing is you're trying to act in certain ways to get things, and you're missing God. He's who you have. 
See, I, I think that George Mueller would emphasize his relationship of fellowship and communion with the Lord, even, even above and beyond the miracles that took place in his life. It's about God. It's not about just getting the stuff from God. And plus, remember, relationship, if you have a relationship, are your relationships, I'm asking you this question, are your relationships with people all identical in how you relate to people? Nope, it's not. So it is with our relationship with God. Did you hear that? It's not always what God did for George, he's going to do for me. And it's going to be identical. And it's just cookie cutter things. Because that's not personal, is it? God wants us as individuals even to know him. And to grow us in relationship with him. And if you have a relationship of communion and fellowship with the Lord, then he guides how you pray and what to pray for. I think the same danger can come in when we look at uh, people like Abraham and other people in the scriptures, other biblical characters. We can turn their lives into these little stories to tell us what we're supposed to do or not to do. And you can read Abraham and Sarah, for example, and you can just think, well, God promised them a baby. They waited a long time and they got a baby. So I'm going to pray for a baby. Where's my baby? That can be a devastating way to interpret the scriptures, can't it? Especially for someone who's suffering under the curse of infertility. Or you could look at Abraham and you could think, Abraham was willing to leave his homeland, so I need to be willing to leave my homeland. And Abraham got all these great things promised to him. I'm going to get these great things promised to me if I leave my homeland. Where's the great things promised to me? And, and if that's your mindset, you're looking to the great things as being greater than God. You have God. The point is God. And that's been the point from the beginning of Genesis as we've been studying. You remember the punishment that was given to Adam and Eve? They were kicked out of the garden. And the reason why that's so horrible is because they've been removed from deep fellowship with the Lord. That's humanity's greatest need is deep fellowship with God. And that is actually how we ought to read the stories of Genesis. Genesis is written to show us God and to reveal our need for him. And while the narratives do reveal to us ways in which God interacts with specific individuals, we need to be careful to not assume that every specific thing is to be applied in the exact same way to us. At the same time, we ought to assume that what's written there does have implications to us. Just like the first the first audience of this book. Do you remember who's the original audience? You say it? What? Israelites, wandering Israelites. So they would read it and understand we need to be reintroduced to God and how we ought to respond to him. And then the New Testament scriptures tell us in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. So if we want to grow in the faith and live for God's glory, these stories, these narratives, are revealing to us how God works in the saints, and that's profitable for us to understand. But in all of this, these stories are not simply a recipe list for success. Okay? These, these, this narrative is telling us that God is, is revealing himself for relationship. 
with us. That he is calling us to relationship with him. If we miss relationship, we miss everything. Truly. So I say all of this today because in Genesis 18, 1 through 15, it, can, it really can feel out of place. Why is this even here? And I think it's because of the relational piece. And as we understand the relationship, we'll begin to understand how it applies to us thousands of years later. So as we begin, I want to give the main idea, and then we'll jump into the text to get implication from this. But the main idea in this sermon is for those in fellowship with God, he does even the impossible for their eternal good. That's what I think we can draw from this narrative. For those in fellowship with God, we should note this chapter. We see that if people who, we, and, and I also think, taking this quote, uh, this quote, <laughs> if the people of God fully believe what he said he would do, their lives, their world would be very different. We're going to jump into these first eight verses in just a moment. So if you have your Bibles, go to Genesis 18, and we'll read those first verses. But I want you to keep in mind something. What, what, what happened in chapter 17? In chapter 17, God reiterated the covenant, and God said that you and your household need to be circumcised. And Abraham did that. That was belief. That was trusting in the Lord. And so there was circumcision that took place. And now, at some point later, this happens. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent, Abraham. In the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent of Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. For those who are in fellowship with God. Do you guys remember the name that God uses to refer to himself in chapter 17? In chapter 17, it was the name El Shaddai. In the English, we read God Almighty. But I talked about that last week, that there's, there's more to that phrase in the Hebrew. And it is ideas of God not just having power, but God is power. And he takes his power and merges them with his promises for the eternal good for his children. So, so what we're looking at in this chapter is seeing what El Shaddai looks like in practice, what this means. So we have El Shaddai, and he comes in human form. Okay, but as we just read these eight verses here, or maybe you've read this passage before, how many of you find this narrative to be kind of weird? Like, just kind of, what is that? And th there's three, and then Abraham is talking to the Lord, and why are there three? 
And then, uh, I'm not sure what's actually going on. Is this a trinity? And, and what is happening here? Anybody ever ask those kinds of questions in, that kind of, in this text? Yeah, some people, okay? Well, what I want to say, at least from the, from the start, with regards to the three, who are these three? Okay, there's different speculation. I think that there is an answer in this text. If you go to the very last verse of chapter 18, it says, The Lord went his way when he finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. And then in verse 1 of 19, the two angels came to Sodom. So I actually believe that what's taking place here is we have the Lord and two angels that's here. Even in this text, the verbiage of, of you it can be in plural and singular uh, in this text. Abraham's talking to the Lord, there's one, and then there can be plural talking to all three of them, okay? But you know what? We can even get messed up just focusing on that situation and miss what's really taking place here. What, what is happening here? And what's happening here is a revelation of the relationship that Abraham has with the Lord. And as I looked in these eight verses, I saw four ways, four ways in which Abraham is, Abraham's fellowship with God is revealed. This is the way it's revealed in these verses. His fellowship with the Lord looks like being affected by him, graced by him, communing with him, and experiencing covenant with him. And now I want to jump in to see how we see these things in Abraham's relationship with the Lord. Abraham is affected by God. When, Ab when the Lord shows up, Abraham is not indifferent. His whole being springs into action and response. He immediately gets up. This is, this is in the heat of the day. This is in the time frame of the day when you would be relaxing because it's so hot. So he's in his tent and there are these three beings that show up. Abraham knows, knows, beyond a shadow of a doubt, one is the Lord. And so he jumps up and he goes to the Lord and he bows down and he says, Oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now in chapter 17, the Lord told Abraham that he was going to have a child. His own biological child. And how many years, by that point in time, do you remember how many years has Abraham been waiting for God to... 24 years so far. Now it's more than 24 years. Okay? He's been waiting. So I imagine he's also probably been anticipating God to show up again. And there he is. One afternoon when it's hot and he's relaxing and God shows up and he springs into action. You even see in this text a little bit later, uh, the words run, quick, ran, quickly shows up twice. I mean, he is moving. God has shown up. God affects him. That's what a relationship with God ought to do. If someone says they have a relationship with God and they're not affected, they're unaffected, I think we should question that relationship. Do you have a relationship with God? I'm reminded of the Apostle James's words when he talks about people knowing the truth and he says, you know, you believe God is one, fine. Even the demons believe. And do you remember the next part of what he says? Even the demons believe and tremble. Why does James say and tremble? 
Why does he add that piece to it? It's because we human beings, we can believe right theology. And we don't have an emotional response that matches the theology. We're, We're unaffected by that theology. And so what James is saying, he says, demons, demons can be better theologians than humans. And they can emote correctly. That doesn't make sense because it's not simply enough to know the information. For those of us who actually know the Lord, we would also mimic the prayer of David who says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. But he doesn't stop there. Remember what he also says? Unite my heart to this. I need this to affect my entire being. And what we see beautifully here is by God's grace, Abraham is affected by God's presence. That's what fellowship looks like. But he has fellowship with this God because he is graced by God. That's what he says, oh Lord, if I have found favor in your sight. That word for favor relates to the word grace in the scriptures. He's been graced by God. Abraham's statement here emphasizes dependence on the Lord. Grace, grace is something you cannot earn. It's not something that you can require upon God. Grace is given by God. You know, some people have a view of relationship with God that if I do this much, then God's going to accept me. Or if I do this bad thing over here, then God's going to reject me. And I just want to make sure that my scales are outweighing the bad so that I'm good enough. Even we who are Christians, we can fall into that trap, can't we? But, but here's, here's what grace speaks to us. God loves you because he loves you. Did you hear that? God loves you because he loves you. Not because you did He doesn't love you less because you did. Grace is utter security because it's not dependent on anything we've done and it's not dependent on anything anybody else could do to us. It's all dependent on God. He loves us because he loves us and because God is steadfast, then that love is secure. That grace is secure. So Abraham recognizes this grace. If I have found favor in your sight, don't pass by Your servant. Abraham has this grace. Abraham is affected by this, so he requests to commune with the Lord, to be to to live out this fellowship that he has had with the Lord for decades now. So he offers some bread and some water and some respite. And when God agrees, Abraham doesn't just get bread and water. You notice that, right? Like he just starts with, I I can just give you some bread and water. Okay, that's fine. Hurry up! We got to make a meal. Like, we're going to maximize on this. And so he goes quickly running, sacrifices a calf for food. He gets goat's milk. This is a relationship of grace, a relationship of communion. And that's one of the reasons for meals in the scriptures, to commune with. But also in this text, This meal and the way in which Abraham goes about this meal expresses his view of himself, expresses Abraham's view of himself. 
because he's offering quite a meal that would only take place for a very special occasion. In addition, once the meal is made, oh, this is something we wouldn't see either probably. Um, the milk that's offered here is goat's milk, which was also more prized milk. So this whole meal is for the Lord. This is a sacrifice and offering. But to add to this, we see Abraham, Abraham doesn't think too highly of himself, does he? He bows down before the Lord, and then when the meal is made, where is Abraham? Did you see what the text says he's doing? He's standing. It's just amazing to stand in the presence of God. Like this, Abraham, through whom all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. The one who is going to essentially be the king of, of all these other kings that are going to come from him, and the king is going to come from him. He does not even, he doesn't even want to sit and eat there. He's taking joy in standing. Taking delight in that he can be a servant of God. It reminds me of King David's words in the Psalms. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now just translate that for us. David is saying to simply stand at the door where God's dwelling is, where God reveals the magnificence of his glory. To simply stand, even outside, at the door provides greater wonder and awe and amazement and joy than anything that this world can come up with. Being there is better than the courts that human beings can create. That's how great God is. That's how wondrous he is. To be able to simply be near him is better than anything you can come up with. You believe that? And I think, I think that for many of us, you, you're like nodding your heads like, yeah, 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 that is true. Is it true? Do you know that? Do you pray for that? Do you say, Lord, unite my heart to this reality. I need to see you. I need to behold your glory so that I, so that I would believe this and that I would act in such ways that reveal I actually have fellowship with you. I'm great with being his servant. Just to stand in his presence would be eternal delight. And Abraham has this communing desire because underneath all of this is this covenant that God has made. There's this covenant relationship. Now you might look at this text and say, how in the world is this indicating a covenant relationship? Well, remember, when we're reading the Bible, we need to ask, what would the original audience be thinking when they're reading a text? We in 21st century, we eat a meal. We're not making agreements. You know, We don't signify much by eating meals. The Israelites wandering in the wilderness, I think, would pick up on this covenant meal right away. Because the next time 
that God has a meal, so to speak, with the people. Do you know when it is? Just in your mind, if you can think of it. The next time the Israelites have, or, or the next time God has a meal with someone, it's with the wandering Israelites at the ratification of the covenant at Mount Sinai. And then in Leviticus, God commands a meal called the peace offering, which is to signify to the worshiper that there is peace between him and the worshiper. The wandering Israelites, when they look at this text and they see the Lord, Abraham, a meal, and in just a couple of verses, God's talking about Sarah and a child. This is a covenant meal. This meal means something. And this covenant is communicating peace and grace between the Lord and Abraham. Kind of reminds me of uh, the most important meal I've ever had. Some of you, maybe many of you can relate to this. The most important meal I've ever had, the meal supreme over all other meals. And it was the meal at the reception after my wedding. I, and I think Tracy would say this too, like we barely remember what we ate. We were pretty tired by that point in time in the day. Um, I think I remember the cake, but I don't know if that's just because I've seen the video so many times. Um, I, I, I don't remember much about it. But that meal is the most important meal I've ever had. Why? Why? I mean, you guys know the answer. Because it, it communicated something. I am now, I'm not just sitting down and eating a meal with my girlfriend. And she's not just sitting down and eating a meal with her boyfriend. I'm sitting down with my wife. And, and, and she and I, by God's grace, will forever be integrated with one another to help each other to grow to be more like Christ. This meal of celebration with other people is communicating so much here. And that's what's taking place in this text. There's a covenant relationship that has shaped Abraham and God brings the witnesses of the angels into this meal. And so, the wandering Israelites would look at this. God is keeping his promise. God is setting this promise in stone through a meal that they can always go back to and say, I remember when I ate with him. And by the way, what's so beautiful in this meal, God actually decides to come in human form to do this. He doesn't even just come in angelic form. He comes in human form to really relate, in a sense, with Abraham so that Abraham can have this promise in flesh and blood. So we see with Abraham's relationship with the Lord over 20 plus years, we see results of this relationship or effects of the relationship that he is affected by God. He's graced by God. He communes with God. He receives and rehearses, experiences the covenant with God. Now, that's the first point. And I want to go back to the quote I said at the beginning. If the people of God fully believed what he said he would do, now or at any time in the history of the faith, their lives, their world would be very different. Abraham, we know, by the way, he wasn't perfect in his belief, was he? There were times he failed. This story is showing how he believed God 
circumcise the household. And then God shows up. And there's the affirmation of promises. But it's not just simply that Abraham believes God's promises. He believes God. We've seen already through even his disobedience how God has revealed himself to Abraham in order to increase Abraham's dependence on him, right? And so I'd actually kind of like to modify that statement. If the people of God fully depended on the Lord, then they would believe what he said he would do, and their lives would be radically different. Do you get the nuance difference there? It's not just believing what he says, it's actually depending on him. Now, with that, we're going to see the radical change that's about to take place. Verses 9 through 15, let's read together. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. For those in fellowship with God, he does even the impossible, even the impossible for their eternal good. Eternal good is extremely important to emphasize here. You know, I could say, God does the impossible. That's true too, right? But sometimes when we hear something like that, I could say, Lord, it would be pretty impossible for a Ferrari to just show up in my driveway. I mean, it might even be possible for someone to drive it into my driveway, okay? So like, the Lord does the impossible. Is anything too hard for him? But that's not what the point of the text is. I mean, let's, let's make it more even serious. Lord, it's... It seems like it would be impossible for you to take away my chronic pain that I have in my hip. And I think that would be for your glory. And yet the Lord hasn't taken it away. So what must be for my eternal good? Maybe endurance in the midst of pain. See, eternal good is extremely important as we look at this. And it's extremely important in in this narrative, too. If we don't get that point, we miss the big point of what God is communicating in Genesis. What was the promise God made after Adam and Eve sinned? One of the the big one. The serpent crusher is going to come. The seed of the woman is going to come. And that is what we need for eternity. Because what does it matter? What does it matter if hip pain goes away and I spend millennia in hell? Do you hear that? See, God has made a promise, and he's made promises for eternal good, which is glorious and wondrous, that God would even want our eternal good. So we look here in this text, and what we saw is that the Lord asked where Sarah is. Not not because he doesn't know, 
but I think it's because he wants Sarah to know that he is thinking of her. And he wants her to hear the promise. And it's, it really is a shocking promise. Have you guys ever had something happen in your life that was like you believed it, but it was too good to be true, and you had to tell yourself, like, I know this is real, but is this real? Any of you ever had that before? Okay. Like, I remember years and years ago when, when our daughter Elise was, was newborn, and, and our van at the time was starting to break apart. And we were driving in it on the highway, and my grandma called me, and it, she couldn't even contain her excitement. Like, right away, hi, Tim. I bought you a van. Hi, Grandma? What, what just happened? You know, my grandma, she's not, she's not wealthy, extravagant in any kind of way. It's just, yet she bought us a van. You want to come pick it up? Well, I guess so. <laughs> what kind of van is this? Where is Wow, what? So many questions, right? Now, if we, can, if we can be shocked in something like that, then I think that we ought to be able to at least relate to Sarah's, I'm going to say, disbelief. In this story. Because this is, this is beyond, I would say it's like beyond shocking what's taking place here. I think we can feel what she feels. The Lord says in a year, by next year this time, Sarah will have given birth to a child. And the Lord even adds, surely. Like this is, this is certain that this is going to happen. And then we're told that she laughed to herself. In the Hebrew, it actually could be she laughed within herself. So it might have even been a laugh that you couldn't even hear. She just held it inside. But the reason why she held it to herself is because there was some shame that she felt. Like there was, she knew this laughter was not from belief. Unlike when we talked about Abraham's laughter in the last chapter. This laughter is like, yeah, right. This, this laughter is like, God can say what he wants to do but my body says otherwise. I mean, seriously, she's 89 years old. I mean, it's very polite wording here on their age, right? Um, where does it say it? Abraham and Sarah were old, okay, advanced in years, right? Oh, do you know that person? They're advanced in years. <laughs> um, but 89, that's advanced. And the way of... the. the you wouldn't get pregnant at 89 years old. And she's saying, there's no way. God can say what he wants, but my body says otherwise. Hmm. Ventura, I actually think that we can think that way many times. I think that you have probably thought that way many times. Where when we're stuck between God's promises and what we can see around us, we end up submitting to what we can see. Like, we're great with trusting God's promises when it makes sense and it fits with what we can see. But when God's promises don't merge with what we can see, we turn it around. Can you, can you relate to that? It, it reminds, me, reminds me of the story of Jesus when he heals a lame man and friends take this lame person to Jesus. And then Jesus says to this man before healing him, he says, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious people are really upset 
And they say, Jesus is blaspheming because only God can forgive sins. And then Jesus asks this, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. What's Jesus saying here? Which is easier to say in a world in which we just see what is easier to say? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because I can't see the results of that, per se. I can't, I can't see sins are forgiven. It's harder to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, because then the person has to get up and walk. You get that? And so then Jesus says to the religious leaders and to this man, <laughs> they know it's harder to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. So Jesus says, okay, so that you know that I am the son of man, which would mean he's not blaspheming by saying you're forgiven. So that you may know, rise, take up your bed, walk. And he gets up and walks, which means what? The man really was forgiven, right? So if we take Jesus's verbiage here, which is harder? Which is harder? The physical, the physical temporal, or eternal? Which is harder? It's the eternal. That's what's harder. And, and so you say, what does this have to do with Abraham, Sarah, and the baby? Abraham, we just saw in these first eight verses, has received God's grace. That's the harder thing. That's the beautiful reality. He has received that. So if God promises anything else after that, that's easy. That's nothing in comparison to God reconciling someone to himself. Abraham has a relationship with the Lord. Sarah has a relationship with the Lord. And remember, God said in Genesis 3, he is going to reverse the curse, right? And part of the curse, part of the curse was there's going to be all sorts of pain surrounding having children. That doesn't thwart God. He has promised the serpent crusher that's going to come, and he had promised that it's going to be through Abraham and Sarah and through her womb, and her womb has all sorts of problems. But guess what God's going to do? He overpowers the womb because that's the reversing of the curse to bring about the serpent crusher. Listen, the world and the curse submits to God, not the other way around. It's now that we can move on, and I would say reread verses 13 through 15 here. The Lord said to Abraham, why does Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did laugh. Now, the emphatic phrase here in verse 14 is, is anything too hard for the Lord? Before getting to that, the Lord asks Abraham why Sarah would laugh simply because she's old. Now, again, that's not because God wouldn't know what kind of response Sarah would give to that question. He's drawing her heart out to emphasize to Sarah and to Abraham what they ought to believe. And what ought they to believe? I mean, this is, this is a rhetorical question, right? This isn't God saying, 
It could be yes, it could be no. You know, it's, is anything too hard for the Lord? We know the answer, no. Nothing's too hard for the Lord. Now this word for hard in the Hebrew actually I think merges a couple of ideas. And I think we merge together the idea of something being wondrous and impossible. You know, is anything too wondrously impossible? Is anything too gloriously impossible for God to do? Can anything stop him when he wills to do it? No, absolutely not. She laughed, thinking, I can't do that. I'm going to do it. By the time next year, she's going to have a son. Now, intriguingly, Sarah responds to this out of fear. You know, I, I didn't laugh. Why, why, why did she even feel the need to do that? You know, God makes the promise. Then God says, why did she laugh? And listen, there's nothing impossible for me. Oh, by the way, I, I didn't. And I think that's how we as human beings can do too. Like when we're caught red-handed. And then, oh, I just want to let you know, I, didn't, I know, I know, I don't know what you're talking about. I mean, have you, you've probably, I'm sure, experienced it with your children, but you can probably think of times even as an adult where you did something like that. Why, why, oh. See, here's, here's the beautiful reality with God. If we're graced by God, that means nothing we do or don't do separates us from him. And, and in 1 John 1, it says, when we, when we walk in the light, we have fellowship. What, what, Sarah, what, what Sarah's reverting back to is she's, she's trying to hold on to her darkness. And God so graciously says, no, you did laugh. Why is he doing that? Is he doing that just to be like, ha, 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 Sarah? <laughs> no! He's, Sarah, just be honest. God has promised amazing grace to you. And it's so amazing, even in spite of your unbelieving laughter. I have promised this. You laughed. You disobeyed me. Guess what? That doesn't change my promise. Sarah, you laughed. And what's so intriguing in this story, what we even learned last week, what, what's the name of their child going to be? Isaac, which means laughter. Listen, Abraham believingly laughed. Sarah disbelievingly laughed. That doesn't change the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. And that son Isaac is going to lead to joyous laughter for you both because of who our God is. So how does this passage apply even more to us? I've already given some applications, but we, we always need to see how God's glory points to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman that we're looking forward to. He lived the perfect life that Adam didn't live, Abraham didn't live. Jesus is the perfect one. And Jesus, Jesus is the Son of God who actually didn't just come to this earth in the appearance of an angel or even in the appearance of a human being. Jesus didn't just come as a human being for one situation, but Jesus came, God, in the flesh, to this world. Why? To bring about the new covenant. A new covenant. And in his perfect life, then as it got to the end, right before his death, what did he do with his disciples? 
he had a meal. And in that meal, he was emphasizing the new covenant. The new covenant in which, by his blood being shed and by his body being torn, anyone who has, anyone who trusts in him, turns from their sin and trusts in him, you are reconciled to the Lord. And you have a relationship of peace with God forever. It's a glorious message. And actually, some of you might be thinking, how in the world? I mean, they're, they're, we live in a culture where, where many people, I think, just think they presume God, God's going to forgive them. Okay? But there are people who you know the sins in your life. You know the rebellion. You know the selfishness that you want to glory in you and not glory in God supremely. And when you hear that Jesus really does cleanse you from all of your sin, you know that's the hardest thing. How could he do that? I mean, I know like all of these, but not this. Or these things over here. You know forgiveness is the hardest thing. But Jesus has done it. He actually accomplished the forgiveness of sins by taking our sins on himself. And again, for anyone to trust in him, he gives his righteousness. So, truly, for those in fellowship with God, he does even the impossible for their eternal good. Whatever is for our eternal good, he will ensure, even in this life, and so, believer, will you continue to trust him? After all, if the people of God fully believe what he said he would do, if they first, if the people of God would fully trust him, depend on him, and believe what he said he would do, now and at any time in the history of our faith, our lives, our world would be very different. And gloriously, even in the face of Sarah's disbelief, like ours at times, the Lord always remains faithful. Amen? Now, May the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.